Father, we ask for your blessing, your hand of guidance, uh, your light shining on our paths, that we may understand what your word has in store for us and how John chapter 14 can speak and bring to us new revelation that we have never heard of before. And Father, we ask that you would do that, teach us, and guide us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, John chapter 14, Eric did John chapter 13, and now we're in chapter 14, and they kind of run together. This is one of those chapters that I I really don't think there should be a chapter delineation because it just hops right into the next chapter, but we need to set the table here. We're now in the last hours of Jesus' ministry on earth, and from now until the end of the gospel in chapter 21, uh, Jesus will be experiencing those last few hours and what he teaches his disciples in the next couple of chapters to about chapter 18. And this this is where he had his last supper. Judas has left, and now he's talking to them. And that's going to take place for a couple of chapters. And if you think about it, what would you say if you knew you only had hours to live? What would you tell those around you? And this is what Jesus is doing. We know that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he left an example of service and not lordship. And Jesus at this point institutes communion or uh, the Catholic Church would call it the Eucharist. Uh, But communion where we take the bread and the cup. And Judas left at this point and made final plans to betray Jesus. And now Jesus indicates that he will be leaving his disciples but they still don't understand where he is going to go. And they become a little concerned because he keeps talking about he's leaving. He's already told them he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be crucified. But they're they're still not grasping this whole thing. And it's during this time that Peter talks about laying down his life for Jesus. We're going to back up just a little bit into chapter 13, verse 36, where Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now but you will follow later Peter asked why can't excuse me Lord why can't I follow you now I will lay down my life for you then Jesus answered will you really lay down your life for me I tell you the truth before the rooster crows you will disown me three times Uh, and we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew chapter 26 is the vocal on this okay it feels like it's reverberating to me but as long as it's okay for you guys So this is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26. And after this, he went out and he wept. What's the adjective used there? Bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now when somebody is weeping in that type of fashion, there's probably wailing. He, He can't console himself by the weeping that he is experiencing, the grief that has come over him. And so there is this, oh, number one, there is at times the pressure to deny Jesus can be overwhelming. And certainly Peter denied Christ because of the pressure that was brought upon him by those who were around him and also the threat of somebody taking him into custody and also torturing him just like they were torturing Jesus. This pressure to cloak our Christianity can appear in several different forms. And we also want to make it appear like we're not really a radical in following him. We always want to make it appear like we are balanced in our Christianity, that we're not going over the edge too much. That if people say things like, well, do you pray? Well, yes, I pray. Well, how often do you pray? Well, 
every day. Uh, really, every day. Well, how many times a day? Well, you know, I just pray every day. Well, are you praying constantly? And that's what the Lord encourages us to do. And if somebody who's not a believer hears that, especially somebody who's an atheist, you pray every day. Uh huh. And do you hear God's voice when you pray? And you might say, well, sometimes through his word when I'm... Oh, so you hear him audibly. Well, not so much audibly, but I get his direction when I'm praying. And see, when you start talking to somebody who's unsaved, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we know that they probably don't believe in Christ and they're probably hostile to him because anybody who is not for the Lord is actually against him. And when you are a radical... And actually, it's supposed to be normative... It should be a case where your Christianity, everybody should know you're a Christian, without question. If you get the opportunity to open up your mouth, it's not like you grab somebody on the street and say, I'm a Christian, are you? You you don't have to do that, but, you know, it'll come up in conversation in some way, and you want to be that witness. And when you do that, immediately what's going to happen is you're going to suffer loss of relationship. You can suffer loss of position. Uh, even in some cases, eventually you can be forced out of a job. Uh, and in certain countries, you can lose your life for doing so. But God calls us to that type of, in Christendom, normative life as a Christian. In the world, we would be considered radical. What are Christians called today? If you, if you are a conservative Christian evangelical, what are you called by the world an extremist you are an extremist if you hold to these views if you're pro-life rather than pro-abortion well that's an extreme view right things like that and if you're a male and you walk around as a male that's extremist that's aggressive behavior and there may be microaggressions that you carry around and being that male individual and women instead of being feminine they need to be tough and they can do everything that a, a man can do and you know all of these falsehoods that are out there we want to make sure that we treat everybody equally but we are not all equal neither in the eyes of God nor in society, but there are those who are trying to make this happen. And so if we are not equal as Christians, don't be afraid to express that. And you know, the reason people get upset is because they're called to an account. I recently read this little story of a man who was going out witnessing, and he showed up, and I forget the venue that was there, but this young lady... He ended up talking to this young lady about God and Jesus Christ. And so she had a few questions like, why is, if there is a good God, why is there evil and why do people die? And so he answered those questions. Then she came back and retorted with some more questions. And he answered those questions. And eventually the tenor of the conversation started to raise where it turned into an argument between a Christian and somebody he was trying to give the gospel to. Later on, they were still there, he went over to her and he said he apologized for letting the conversation get out of control and he didn't intend for that to happen and he just was able to, between her and him, give her the gospel. Well, come to find out she was having an adulterous affair and she was being convicted of that and she didn't want to hear that she was under condemnation and she didn't want to hear about hell, she didn't want to hear about heaven and all of that. And she eventually accepted the Lord sitting right there talking with this guy because it was the right venue. It was the right way to do it. 
And so we have to be careful about our witness doing it correctly, but we don't want to shy away from it like Peter did. And, of course, Peter knew he had done something wrong. He was weeping bitterly, so to speak. And it may also be perceived as a diminished intelligence if you say you're a Christian, especially in the scientific community. If you say something to an evolutionist, somebody who teaches biology, somebody who's a botanist, somebody who's into evolution, an archaeologist, they may say, that's so little-minded of you. You have no idea what's going on. There are so many books that explain the science of everything that is out there, and usually those who take that view, they haven't read what's going on. They haven't investigated it. And so there are plenty of reasons for faith. We stand on the truth, and the truth cannot be hidden. Remember uh, Peter Barnes, who used to be a Jehovah Witness, he says, error always runs away from truth, but truth never runs from error. You can stand your ground if somebody opposes you, but you want to make sure you do it with gentleness and respect. Secondly, Jesus said, if we deny him, he will deny us before the Father in heaven. This is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. You have that on your outline there. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And so if, if we purposely deny Christ, if we say, no, I don't know the man, then Christ will say the same thing before the Father. I never knew you. Depart from me. Right? And we know the parable of the sheep and the goats, that type of thing. But thirdly, God is gracious even in the midst of our denial. That's number three there. Now, I want to point out, how is it that Jesus sought to restore Peter instead of condemning him for his three-time denial? There seems to be a contradiction here. If Jesus is going to say, I will not recognize you before the Father if you deny me. Didn't Peter just deny Jesus Christ? And how come he wasn't condemned? Why didn't Jesus, being God in human form, condemn him for that? He what? Well, there's something that Peter did that gave an indication that he knew he had done wrong. The weeping. God knew all of that was taking place, and he knew his heart. He was seeking to save his own skin. And we will do the same thing. And God knows our heart. He knows what's in there. And so God extended his grace to Peter. Now, I don't know if you remember the story about it, but he meets Peter as he's fishing out there. And he calls him to shore. And Peter, he grabs his cloak and he just jumps in the water and he comes over. And three times, Jesus asked him, do you love me? And Peter said, you know, I love you, Lord. And he asked him again, do you love me, Peter? And he said, Lord, you know all things. And the third time, Peter, do you love me? And it's like, by this time, he's crumbling. Lord, you know that I do. And he did that three times in order to counteract, maybe in Peter's mind, and probably in ours too, three times Peter denied, three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? And so that was kind of uh, an effort to restore him, and in fact, it worked. And we have Peter's testimony in this as well. Now going on, Jesus will prepare 
for us a place. In John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Well, it says here, Jesus will give us new bodies and we will shed these present bodies. So the word is bodies. Well, what about these bodies? I've covered this in the book of Revelation. I've covered this in the book of Daniel. I've covered this in Matthew chapter 24, also in the gospel of Luke and also in the gospel of Mark. It talks about the end times, but there are the rapture verses that are there and i've said them many times first thessalonians uh, chapter four it actually begins in about verse 13 to 18 that whole little section that deals with the rapture uh, will have the trumpet call of god and the dead in christ will rise and you have first corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 and 52 and the flash and a twinkling of an eye will be changed, will be translated to meet the Lord in the air. And we're to comfort each other with those words. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is going away to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. Now, some people might say, no, he's talking about the disciples. Did Jesus come back and take the disciples to heaven? He did not. He came back and he left a witness. But when he comes back, that's referring to the rapture. And he comes back in the clouds. He's not coming down to the earth. So that's why this also appears to apply to us as well. So along with the scripture verse in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter, I have it here. It's chapter 26, but I'm looking for the, uh, I hope I didn't leave it out. Did I leave it out? I'm in Revelation here. Hold on. Where did I put? Oh, it's down farther. Oh, I got so much in here. I'm losing my place. I put this in the wrong place. Anyhow, in the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 26, It talks about God coming back and judging. It talks about him grabbing his people and making sure that they are okay until his wrath has passed by. He says, enter my chambers until my wrath has passed by. In that whole chapter there, he talks about what we believe to be the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture of the church, as I have discussed before, is going to take place before the tribulation according to the theology that we teach here at Calvary Chapel Lakeside and after the rapture of the church Jesus will come back and rule and reign for a thousand years according to the book of Zechariah he is going to come back and put his foot on the Mount of Olives east of the the mount there and there's going to be a valley that's created and that's when Jesus comes back but that is not the rapture that is the second coming and then he rules and reigns for a thousand years There are those who would say that the rapture is not something that is biblical. It's been made up. I would completely disagree with that. It is not something that is made up. It is something that is actually going to take place. And it was even taught during the first century and during the second century. 
Uh, you know, I found it here. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 to the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read it to you. If you'd like to open up your Bibles and follow along on this. If you're going backwards, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and just count backwards and you'll find it. Verse 1, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor, the paths of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws. We wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. May soul yearn for you in the night, in the morning. My spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Through grace, or though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you established peace for us, and all we have accomplished you have done for us. O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Their departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped them out all memory of them. And I didn't put the rest of it down. They're the most important part. Anyhow, you guys should just continue to read that because that's where he says, enter my chambers for a little while until I shut, or shut the doors until my wrath is passed by. And it's referring to the rapture of the church. We can clearly see in the Old Testament that was concealed, but in the New Testament revealed. Now, the first century church, as I was saying, they taught this doctrine as well. We have the Apostle Paul and the verses I just gave you talk about the rapture of the church. But then as the church started to age a little bit into the second century, there were writings that were put down for the church. There's one called the Didica. And in the Didica, it gave rules and regulations, what to look for in somebody who is a traveling evangelist. And they, they would say, do not let the person stay more than three days in your house. And if the Lord is going to take care of them, he will supply all of their needs. And just things like that that the Christian was supposed to follow. And that's extra biblical. It's outside. There's another book called The Shepherd of Hermes. And it talks about several different things, and it's written in a poetic fashion. And the Shepherd of Hermes is one that actually says the church will not go through the tribulation. Now, this is from the second century, the Shepherd of Hermes. This is in Vision 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read it to you, this whole section here. It says, The fourth vision which I saw, brethren, 20 days after the former vision, which came unto me for a type of the impending tribulation. I was going into the country by the companion way from the high road. It is about 10 stades, or I guess that's what it's called, stades, S-T-E-S-T-A-D-E-S. And the place is easy for traveling. 
While then I am walking alone, I entreat the Lord and he will accomplish the revelations and visions which he showed me through his holy church that he may strengthen me and may give repentance to his servants which he stumbled or which have stumbled that his great and glorious name be glorified for that he held me worthy that he should show me his marvels. Now that's just down to verse 4 in there, but it, it comes down in verse 5. It says, I see a cloud of dust rising as it were to heaven. And I began to say within myself, can it be that cattle are coming and raising a cloud of dust? For it was just about a stayed from me. As the cloud of dust waxed greater and greater, I suspected that it was something supernatural. Then the sun shone out a little and behold, I see a huge beast like some sea monster. And from its mouth, fiery locusts issued forth. And the beast was about a hundred feet in length and its head was as it were, of pottery. And I began to weep and to entreat the Lord that he would rescue me from it. And I remembered the word which I had heard. Be not of doubtful mind, Hermes, having therefore brethren put on the faith of the Lord and called to mind the mighty works that he taught me. I took courage and gave myself up to the beast. Now the beast was coming on with such a rush that it might have ruined a city. I come near to it, and huge monster as it was, it stretched itself out on the ground and merely put forth its tongue and stirred not at all until I had passed by it. And the beast had on its head four colors, black, then fire, and blood color, then gold, then white. Now after I had passed the beast and had gone forward about 30 feet, behold, there meeteth me a virgin arrayed as if she were going forth from a bridal chamber all in white and with white sandals veiled up to her forehead and her head covering consisted of a turban and her hair was white. I knew from the former visions that this was the church and I became more cheerful. She saluted me saying, good morrow, my good man. And I saluted her in turn, lady, good morrow. She answered and said to me, do nothing meet here? I say unto her, Lady, such a huge beast that could have destroyed whole peoples. But by the power of the Lord and by his great mercy, I escaped it. Thou didst escape it well, saith she, because thou didst cast thy care upon God and didst open thy heart to the Lord, believing that thou canst be saved by nothing else but by his great and glorious name. Therefore the Lord sent his angel, which is over the beast, whose name is Sergri. And shut his mouth that it might not hurt thee. Thou hast escaped a great tribulation by reason of thy faith. And because thou, thou sawest so huge a beast, thou didst not mind doubt in uh, in thy mind. Go therefore and declare to the elect of the Lord his mighty works and tell them that this beast is a type of the great tribulation which is to come. If therefore ye prepare yourselves beforehand and repent and turn unto the Lord with your whole heart, you shall be able to escape it. If your heart be made pure and without blemish, and if for the remaining days of your life you serve the Lord blamelessly, cast your cares upon the Lord, and he will set them straight. Now there's a couple of things theologically that I disagree with in here. But he is saying this is back in the second century. The church is not going to go through the tribulation. There are other ancient writings like this that the church is going to be raptured and not go through the tribulation. So I just wanted to give you that to hold on to in case anybody wants to pervert that particular doctrine. You can remember the shepherd of Hermes. 
The Shepherd of Hermes was written in the second century, and it was discussed there how the church will not go through the tribulation. And once we go through the tribulation, of course, we'll be with the Lord and we'll meet him in the air and be changed at that point. Now, thirdly, this third point here, Jesus will show us the way and the way going into heaven. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Number one there, under that third Roman numeral, it is not a path that leads us to heaven. It is the person. It's Jesus Christ the ones that lead, is the one who leads us to heaven. There is no amount of sacrifice, no amount of faithfulness, no amount of character building, no amount of service or dedication that will be the final path to heaven and salvation. Now, there's a whole section of Christendom that says, you must do that. In the Shepherd of Hermes, you just saw that in the last verses that I read. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, then you'll go to heaven. No, it's not about that. That's what I have a problem with theologically. It's who you believe in. It's the person. It is not the path. It is false to say all roads lead to heaven. Have you ever heard that one? All roads lead to heaven and also all spokes lead to the hub. It is not a road that we take. Again, it is the person that we have to trust in. It is only the Redeemer that grants us access to the presence of God. It is not how we live our lives. Living our lives is simply the outpouring, the outworking of the salvation that is in us. Now, there might be some objection. Is there anywhere that says the road is wide that leads to destruction and the road is narrow that leads to salvation? Okay, did I just say there is no road or path that leads to salvation? I'm going to read you the scripture that says the wide road and the narrow road. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So if I just say it's not a road, and scripture says it's a road. Well, no, I think they're talking about the same thing, but... Now, see, this is a classic where somebody would come in who doesn't like the Bible and you teach that it's the person you believe in, not the pathway that you're on. There's not many roads that lead to heaven. There's only one road. There's only one way. If Jesus says there is a road, he's talking metaphorically. There's no road that leads from here that you see going to outer space and all the way to the third heaven. He's speaking metaphorically. There's this way that you walk. Jesus is the way, right? Well, he's not talking literally. He's not himself a road that you have to walk on. Or if he calls himself a gate, it doesn't mean you have to take his arm and open it up and walk through. That's not what he's talking about. You can only get there through Jesus Christ. You cannot get there by anything that you do or I do or anyone does. We cannot get to heaven. This is God's way of reaching out to humankind. Man's way of reaching out to God is by doing. We have to do, do, do. And if we don't, then we're not going to make it. In John chapter 10, verse 7 through 9, it reads there, Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, whoever enters me, through me will be saved. 
he will come in and go out and find pasture. Again, that's just laden with metaphor in there. And we want to make sure we don't confuse it. And you'll see in a minute how somebody has done this. Jesus is the way. He does not point to the way. If he pointed to anything at all, he'd point to himself. He wouldn't say, walk this way, like the old song, walk this way. You know, He doesn't say doing that. You guys remember the uh, movie Young Frankenstein? There was a guy by the name of Marty Fellman. And Marty Fellman, he answers the door and he tells the person, walk this way. And the person follows him the way Marty Fellman is walking. You know, he's all hunched over and he just copies that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And so it is metaphor that's there. He is the way, he is the truth and the life and nobody comes unto the Father except through him. So all earthly religions... Their basis for getting saved, they teach you you must do certain things in order to enter heaven. In other words, you must do to be saved. Now, I don't want to confuse this. Those who believe will do anyway. But belief is not predicated, it is not established by what you do. It is simply an outpouring, an outworking of our belief. Now, this is Christianity 101. God wants us to know this simple truth. No work can you do. Because we're going back to uh, Louisiana, and we're going over to Cambodia, and we've been to New Jersey, and we've been to Bay St. Louis, and all these places we've gone to help out. Not one of those works grants us entry into heaven. Not one. We go simply because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus teaches you must believe to be saved. The whole of Scripture teaches that as well. But these religions, for instance, the Christian cults, Mormonism. You've heard me mention this before. You have the celestial, you have the terrestrial, and you have the telestial. Those three heavens. And if you're good, you get to the celestial the tall, the highest one, and you get your own planet, and your family is there, and all your kids are there, and you populate the planet, and you become a god in your own planet. That's what they teach. If you were not so good, if you didn't really accept the gospel, but you were here, you know, well, you can remain in the terrestrial heaven. You can't go to the celestial, because you weren't sealed in the, in the temple. You, you can't do that. You'll be here, and it's far and above anything that we experience now, but you'll be able to go there. And then if you're just rotten to the core and you kind of want to make amends, well, you can go to the telestial is where you can go. But you have to do in order to make any one of those. Could you imagine the money we could garner if we taught everybody in here, you do not go to heaven unless you give at least 10% during your lifetime? Guess who does that? The Mormons. They do that. They actually check your income and they see how much you have given. Yes. Oh. Yes. Well, and that's why it's a cult. They're all about control. They're about informational control. They're about behavioral control. All of those things they seek to control. And the Jehovah Witness must prove himself worthy by the works and submit to all the teachings of the Watchtower Society and never leave them. In other words, you have to be that witness on the corner. That's your primary task for getting saved. If you don't do that, sorry, all bets are off. Also, there are other Christian non-cults that have aberrant teaching, even some heretical. 
Church of Christ. Not all churches of Christ I can speak for, but I know there's a, a large section of them that if you don't go to their church, if you're not baptized by their formula, and if you don't remain, well, either you are never saved or you've lost your salvation. If you go to a church of Christ and you come to Calvary Chapel, I feel so sorry for you because you're not going to make it is what they will teach. And so and they do the same thing. They're into control. Then you have, well, for instance, the world religions, the Hindus. The Hindus teach that you must do. There, there are these three paths, so to speak, that they have to work on. Karma Marga, the Ganada Marga, and the Bhakti Marga. And you can take any one of these paths in order to go on and get out of the loop of reincarnation. There's a famous movie where he, keep, he kept on doing it over and over. Groundhog Day. That's where that philosophy comes from. When you watch it, you're going, what? That's Hinduism. You're just doing It's reincarnated over and over and over till you get it right. Then you get to move on. Uh, did you guys know that that's what is being taught in that movie? I love the movie, but, you know, it's Hinduism through and through. And the first one is, if you choose this path of the karma marga, it is for people who prefer to seek the liberation through a day-to-day task such as raising a family and volunteering. So if you just do, you get to this enlightenment. You get to get out of the, the cycle. If you go to the next one, the Ganada Marga, that's where you devote a great deal of your time to learning and meditation. Um, you, know, you sit there and you cross your legs in a lotus position and you do that and you clear your mind. You vacate everything that's up there, which I do not recommend you do. Then there's the Bhakti Marga. If you worship a god or a goddess, as long as you're faithful to worship that god or goddess, then you make it too. So you've got three different paths, but you have to do these things in order to make it to heaven or to make it to a point of enlightenment then you have buddhism buddhism doesn't have a god there is not an almighty and they say well we're just like you christians you know you just do good and it works and but there's several things that they, a couple of things that they disagreed with the hindus on and that's why they broke off and they became their own particular sect they go to the collective now what famous sci-fi show has a collective star trek what's the collective called the Borg, you guys know what this stuff is. And they get that from this. You, you get up there and you all become one. You become part of the collective when you die. And they do not like people that hold to absolute truth. Because then that's not encompassing of everybody. And they want everybody to be in there. So they're very intolerant of those who have absolute truth. If you ever get in touch with a uh, Buddhist and you want to talk about it a little bit, you just say, I believe in absolute truth, don't you? And they say, no. You say, do you believe that absolutely? Yeah, you can use that one on them. So then there is Islam. The Muslims and salvation, the Quran teaches there is a, there's the seven pillars of Islam and it's all, they say, based in belief. But they will tell you that you must do certain things in order to think that you might have a chance to go to heaven and Allah is a capricious God and he's already chosen who's going and you may not be one of those persons so you may live your life however you think you need to live it and still not make it you know what what kind of religion is that no chance puts it before you and goes I I don't know are you chosen well you won't know until you get there you know what a 
bad bum rap that would be. And so all of these religions, they have this idea of working. If you look at any of them, they have this way of man reaching out to God or humankind reaching out to God, where God says, no, you can't do it. I'm the one that has to reach out to you. And that's what separates Christendom from all other religions. That is the hallmark of the true religion. Works are not the way of salvation. Works are the result of salvation. Now with this also, I need to try to speed up here. I'm not going to try to talk too fast. But Jesus claims here exclusivity. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, another way of saying this is he's very narrow-minded that there are not several paths that lead to God. He is claiming nobody gets there, and and Jesus is saying this, unless you go through me. And if we don't look to Jesus, we have no chance to get to heaven. Now, what does this mean for the other world religions? Nobody makes it in the other religions. Nobody. Now... What do you think of that position? You're an extremist. I am an extremist. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of um, Brian McLaren? Eric has. Brian McLaren is part of the, you want to give it the name? The Emergent Church. The emergent church is out there and they're doing weird things. They claim to be Christians, but they want to be accepting of everybody who is out there. It's ecumenical in its scope. Just bring everybody in. Let's take away those things that are absolute truth, water them down, and we'll just all get along. After all, God loves everybody, right? And we all end up making it. So let's just act that way. This is this is taken from an article where he's quoted in he has this dilemma on saying that Christianity is an exclusive religion, that everybody else is disqualified. This is what he did. He separated how you have to come to this conclusion. He said, if you believe that Christianity is the only way, then all religions, and you have to go through this, this type of reasoning. You have to say, well, all religions must be true. You can take that bent, right? And that's a bent that McLaren would probably take then there, all religions are completely false. Now, both of those I would reject. There is nothing in a religion that is absolutely true, or is there? Then secondly, all religions are completely false. Well, that's ridiculous too. Does Confucius speak truth? Yes, he does. Is there truth in the Book of Mormon? There's scripture in the Book of Mormon, so there is truth in the Book of Mormon. Do you think that the Buddhists hold on to some truth? They do. And so I'll leave you with this phrase on this. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. For instance, there are formulas we use in mathematics that are absolutely true. God created that. There are truths in physics that are absolutely true. Force equals mass times acceleration. That is a formula that is absolutely true. And guess who came up with it? God did. We discovered it. And so force equals mass times acceleration is not in the pages of Scripture. You will not find it there. But it is still God's truth. And so all of these religions, they may have a little truth. Now, here's a couple more. 
one religion is completely true and the others are true wherever they agree with it. Now, that's the position I hold. I hold that one religion is true and where these other religions intersect with it, they're true. Whatever truth they have, all truth is God's truth, I can be comfortable with that one. But it is not truth unto salvation. Now, you guys following me here? You have to go through this process. If you're going to hold to Jesus is the only way, it's the one true religion, no one gets to heaven except by believing in Jesus Christ, that is very narrow-minded, and if you don't believe that way, you're not going to heaven. That is the most contentious, intolerant, narrow-minded view you can possibly hold. Unless it is the truth. Right? Let me give you another one. All religions are partially true and partially false. Now, this is the thinking process that McLaren is going through. Now, is that true? All religions are partially true and partially false. I would say not with Christendom, Christianity... It's absolutely true. Now, it's because I've been raised in the culture. I have the Bible. I follow Jesus Christ, and that's why I believe it, right? No, I can look at it objectively. It's like evolution. You can look at evolution objectively, right? And you can see if there's evidence there for evolution and not deny the evidence that is placed before you. You can look at things objectively. You can remove yourself. Now, not totally, but usually you can remove yourself and look at things objectively from a standpoint of being on the outside. When you're in a relationship, you're looking at that relationship subjectively. But you can look at world religions objectively. You had something to say, Terry? Oh, I was just saying that you think our religions Yes. Well, it's where they are truth. Yes. Yeah, wherever the other religions are true, I'm okay with the truth that they hold as long as it's verifiable and it comports with God. It lines right up with God because God's truth is everywhere. It's ubiquitous, so to speak. Then there's this final one. One religion, my religion, is completely true and all other religions are completely false. Now I reject that one because there is truth in other religions. Now if you're somebody going, who is a Christian, going to the world and you say Jesus is the only way, those are fighting words because you can't possibly believe that. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. And we have to be able to defend that. Now, when this comes up, you know, how we're supposed to be this witness and we're supposed to tell the world this. Now, even in Christendom, there are certain truths that we're supposed to hold on to as Christians that are non-negotiable. For instance, you have the virgin birth, you have the deity of Jesus, you have the trinity the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they are co-equal members of the Godhead, right? They are one in essence. You have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have in view in the future the resurrection of the dead and the judgment which is to come and the return of Jesus Christ and the eventual judgment on the world. Those things are not 
non-negotiable. If somebody wants to say something like, I don't believe that uh, hell will last forever. I believe it's temporal. I believe in total annihilation that God will destroy hell and everybody will just fall asleep and not exist. The Bible does not teach that. Well, I mean, there goes away the punishment for not believing in Jesus Christ. Punishment is eternal. Now, I'm, I'm telling you guys in here simply what Scripture says. And that's what we're supposed to communicate. And Jesus is coming along and saying, I am the only way. That's what he's saying. And you either believe it or you don't. And when the opportunity comes up to share that, we should share that. And people reject Christianity just because of Satan and the world and the way that it operates. There is one person, G.K. Chesterton. He said, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting but that it has been found difficult and left untried. And I totally believe that. This idea that people look at it, no, there's, you, you have to follow this one guy, and the world does not want to do that. The world wants to do what they want to do, and so they just utterly reject it. They don't want to hold to it. Now going on, Jesus has shown us the Father. Philip said in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father that we that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus is equal to the Father and Spirit in essence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in what is made up of them, so to speak. But the next one there, I think it's the next one, Jesus is also subservient to the Father. Now some people would say this relationship came about when Jesus became incarnate. I reject that view. I think that the Son was always subservient to the Father. And likewise, the Spirit always bore witness to the Son. Now, how that worked out in what I would call eternity past, I don't know. But it says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, he did take on a human body, but the relationship was the same. Nothing changed. And so Jesus is equal to the Father in essence. Uh, he has equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. And that is in Philippians chapter 2. I have a couple of different versions here. Also, it says in Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Now, I don't think the Father demands and clings to his rights as God. Neither does the Spirit. They are all the same. But Jesus is always submissive to the Father. And, of course, this is the Trinity. There is a distinction made also. The Father is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But they are all God. How do we reconcile that? It's like trying to reconcile this. <clears throat> Describe to me God. Give, give me something that describes God. Right? Okay, okay, I was hoping you would say something like that. Eternal. Eternal is a reference to time. God existed before time. How else would you explain God? 
He's all-knowing. That's correct. He's all-knowing. But specifically, when it comes to time, some people would say, well, he's always been. Oh, that's a reference to time again. Get rid of time, and how would you describe God? Yes, yeah, that's it. And, you know, when you, when you go to the burning bush, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? He goes, I am that I am. He just... And see, even if I say he was, no, he is. And he, if I say is always, that, that brings in time. And time is not part of God, but time is necessary for our existence. So God just is. Now try to wrap your head around that. I tried meditating on that for a while, and I was getting this cramp in my brain. I, I just, I can't go that far. God is just so... Beyond our comprehension, it is just a marvel to try to contemplate who God is. And here, he becomes one of us. Forever. Now, what would drive God to do that? Especially coming down with all of us. We are called dogs in Scripture. You know, we're unclean, we're unfit, we're pagans, all of that. And yet Jesus decided to become one. And so this idea, this is non-negotiable, who Jesus is. He is equal to the Father. He is the exact representation of his very being. And so we, we never want to muddy that up. And by the way, that's the whole theme of the Gospel of John, that he is God. He is equal to the Father, but he's subservient to him. He always does the will of the Father. Also, that I just gave you, Jesus is subservient to the Father, John chapter fourteen twenty eight. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And that's just in position, right? He has the final authority, but it is not in essence. Thirdly, Jesus and the Holy Spirit can do or perform anything the Father can they are equal in this way. There is nothing that is too hard for any one of them. Verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So I, I didn't put this down here as one of the points, but you can pray to Jesus. I've been asked that question several times. Do I pray to the Father? Because Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus says here, you can ask him. So you can go directly to Jesus and you can ask him anything in his name. Now, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? You can. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, I just recently got this little blurb from somebody about somebody going through a Halloween, one of those um, uh, stores. And it was rebuking every single one of the masks and the, the costumes. And it, it's like, yeah, I don't think, I, you have no power to do any of that stuff. But anyhow, you could ask Jesus to do it, but this guy was doing it. You know, I rebuke you, you know, I put you down, Satan, you are the enemy. And he's the devil face and he's, he's poking at the little things that are on there, you know. And say, don't get caught up in that. Jesus is the one that has the authority. Now, going on with this, the Father will give us the Spirit. If you love me, you will obey my command. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you, or with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live in you. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, and we are all together. It doesn't say that in Scripture. That's just that song, right? We are all together. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, and who loves he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. He wants us to be one with him just as he is one with the Father. Do you understand what that means? That's another mind blower. What do you mean? Yeah, he wants us to sit on his throne, Scripture says, with him. We will rule and reign with him. God, who is, wants us to be one with him who is, and we will be. And just, no, am I saying you're going to be God? No, you're not going to be God. You're not going to be divine, any of that. But I'm, I'm trying to wrap myself around this concept as well. I mean, this is incredible. God created the whole universe, right? What is in us? Is it in us to create? Uh, are there ridges? Ridges. Ridges and roads and houses and buildings and boats and ships. We have this concept within us to create. God has given that to us. Now, I wonder what kind of responsibility he'll give to us in heaven. I have no idea, but my mind starts getting blown a little bit when I start thinking about this stuff. It is just going to be incredible. The opportunities that God is going to give to us. He is giving us his authority to rule and reign with him when we come back in the tribulation, after the tribulation period in the thousand-year millennial reign. And so the things that God has in store for us, we haven't even gotten a spark a little inkling, a little ember of what that is going to be. Going on, those who believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit living inside. And this is how all of it will be accomplished. Just as Jesus had the Father working in him, we have the Holy Spirit working in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Or don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So the Holy God, the creator of the universe, the spirit that moved across the face of the waters, now dwells in us. Now, how do you do that? He is omnipresent. I, I have no idea. But he lives in us as well. I mean, this is a marvelous thing. Verse 22, then Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Has he answered the question? He has, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, apparently there's something in here that he, he has special for the Christian, that the Christian is going to be indwelt. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. So in an indirect way, he does answer this question 
Why are you not going to show yourself to the world? Because the world is not going to accept them. When we are a witness out there, the world will not accept our words, except those who are predestined for salvation, those that God has ministered to their heart and their heart is open. Well, how do you know who's predestined? Give them the gospel and you'll find out, right? How do you know that we're going to make it to heaven? You'll know when you get there, right? But we also know we have the promise, and it's a deposit guaranteeing that thing which is to come. It's the Holy Spirit living in us. That's how we know. Do you guys experience guilt? I do. When I experience that, I know when God is telling me, don't, don't. You guys know what I'm talking about. And your body, your flesh goes, no, I want to. God goes, don't. And then pretty soon, God says, okay, go ahead. And you know what that feeling is. And then afterwards, what comes on you? Guilt. It comes. And it's just the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it's something that guides us. It goes on, verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. I do not let... Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is actually a song we used to sing in church. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Peace give I to you. It was a wonderful song. Maybe one day we'll do it. But the second time here, it was also in verse 1, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Why is he telling them that? Because they're going to be troubled and they're going to be afraid as soon as Jesus goes to the cross and From this particular standpoint in John, it's only hours away. Verse 28, you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back for you. If you love me, you'll be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. In other words, not you'll be glad that he's going to be crucified, but the end result, you'll be glad about that. I have told you now before it happens so that it does not happen, or when it does happen to you, we'll believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let's leave. So Jesus went to the cross because it was the will of the Father. Which one of us in here would give up our firstborn child? Maybe you go all the way back and you think about that child, or those of us who have children, how small they were and how helpless they were. And would you give up that little child to be killed? And that's what God the Father did. To, to wrap our heads around John chapter 14, God has shown us these great things that he is going to do. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He tells us, do not be troubled. He tells his disciples, he's going to the cross, but don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. And by the way, there is a glory waiting for you that you will not be able to wrap your head around. What kind of God does this? All the other gods are capricious. They just act however they want to act. But God sacrifices his son for us to be with him. Now, if we can't get a hold of that, if we don't let that move us, we're truly asleep or dead. If you don't grab that concept, and because of that, we are able to just get up and continue. When it's hard, you just get up again. It's kind of like the ever-ready bunny. You keep going and going and going until God says, it's enough, you are done. 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you guys have questions about this? Yes. Roman numeral two. I'm looking. There it is. Roman. No, that's three. Going back to two. I skipped over it, didn't I? I didn't even touch on it. We will live in the city called the New Jerusalem. I was going to take you to the book of Revelation and just talk about what this is going to be like. If you have the chance, even tonight, before you go to bed, just open up to Revelation chapter 21 and look at this city. You know, Christmas is coming up. Most people are on a budget, and you're going to buy something, probably something that somebody won't even be using in a year, right? And they'll consume all the candy and the stocking, and God is giving us this city, and it's going to be our new home. It's where we are going to live in my father's house or many mansions. If it were not so, I would tell you. And if I go away to prepare this place, I'll come back and get you to bring you to me where I am. And he gives this description of heaven. It's a place, a dwelling place that is up there. And it is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. And I believe there will not be a shadow in any corner of that city. And how it's constructed exactly... I do not know. It is bigger than the state of California is long. It's huge. And so how big will the earth be that this thing comes down and rests on it? The size of Jupiter? I don't know. It's, it's going to be a huge place, but it is loud. It is colorful. The gates have made of pearl. You have all these stones that are the foundation stones. Jesus Christ is in the center of it. That's where his throne is, and he lights up everything. Not only does he light up everything there, but he lights up the new universe, which is going to be there because there's not going to be any sun, any star that is up there. It's going to be Jesus Christ. And you as well are going to be radiating all over the place. You're going to be bright and shining. And that's what we get to look forward to. I, I don't know about you, but I get excited thinking about these things. And it just motivates me. Okay, I can, I can run until I can't run anymore. That's what God wants from us. And we should be motivated by that. He's just going to lavish on us this huge set of gifts, which will never end. And so... That's John chapter 14. Any other questions? Good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation that you have provided for us. And Jesus Christ, and we understand John 3.16, that you so loved the world that you gave him, your only begotten son, that we may experience fellowship with you in heaven. And there is nothing bad. And there is no shadow of turning. There is no evil, no pain. Father, we long for this day. And for those who are still suffering here, associated with our church and where we go back to Louisiana, Father, may we be that glimmer of hope, that light, as I prayed in the beginning. May you use us to be a witness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.